Um, well, again, I just want to say welcome again. It's, it's good to be back after like a long hiatus, and hopefully your new year has gotten off to a good start. Um, I, for me, most of the time, I, like, I look forward so much to a new year, and, and like the next day, it, it always feels kind of anticlimactic, right? Because you wake up on New Year's Day, and like you're the same person you were on New Year's Eve, and you have all the same problems you had on New Year's Eve, and nothing just like goes away. Um, it's just you, except you're a, like in a new year right? Um, this year it was on a Monday, so it felt like kind of a regular Monday. If that's you, um, then I understand how you feel, because that's sort of how I felt, like I sort of like spilled over into 2017, limping a little bit, but this is good. This, it's good to be back with you all and to be in this place, and um, as I've been kind of like, I had a few weeks with those couple weeks off to just sort of like pray a lot and, and plan for what I, I sense God was doing with us in 2017, and so I am coming to you this morning um, in kind of a, like an excited place about um, where we're going and what God is doing, what he's up to. We're launching a new series um, that I've titled DNA. I don't, there it is right there. Um, I don't fancy myself a science buff, but I do. Like one of my favorite teachers in high school is my freshman biology teacher. He was super fun, so at least you know I listened to that guy a little bit because I really liked him. Um, I don't know that I learned a whole lot, but we're talking about DNA. Um, before we dive into this, I, wanna, I want you to take a moment. I'm not going like, to call on people or anything, but if you have a pen or you have the space in your brain to think for a moment, I want you to just like, write down your definition of church. What is church? Um, you can just think about it if you don't have a pen, or you can write something right now. I'm probably going to keep talking here and there, but I want you to sort of jot that down. When you think of church, maybe just like words um, come to mind. That's okay, too. It doesn't have to be like a perfectly tidy definition of church, but when you think of church, what is it? What words come to mind? What emotions uh, like get conjured up in your heart? What experiences do you have? But at the core of what we're talking about today is DNA of the church. This entire series, the purpose of this series is sort of like realign, refocus, reshift. Um, we'll be rediscovering, clarifying, and uniting around the foundational principles of Finding Life Church. We used to do this all the time. If you've been with us for a long time, you know that every year we sort of did like a reset button, like let's remember who we are and the uniqueness of who we are. And the last couple of years, we actually haven't done that to quite the extent that we did, that we usually did. But this year, as I've looked and considered where we are going into a new year, I was like, man, we gotta start on the right foot. And so this series is going to walk us through kind of the, like who we are. What is the personality of Finding Life Church? Why are we here? What are we doing? What is kind of like our niche? You know, when we first started Finding Life Church, the, the, a lot, the question I got more than any was, why do we need another church? Right? And so we had to like learn the answer to that question really, really quickly. And I'm convinced over the course of the next four weeks that, that you will know that really, really well. Um, because we want to be a church that knows who they are. And we're going to talk about why that is so significant. Um, from the earliest moments of conception this church, at this church, we have been committed to doing whatever it takes to ensure that we never stray from the heart of God for his church. The problem is that as broken, um, selfish, self-centered naturally comfort seekers, it's, it's almost like um, we can't avoid sort of deviation from what God has called us to. And so we have to be committed to sort of being willing to sort of put our, uh, our cards on the table and allow God to correct where we have gotten off course. Um, I saw this illustration um, about airplanes. Today's jets use sophisticated computer systems to constantly, um, to constantly reorient a plane as it travels on its path. During the course of of a trip from Los Angeles to New York, literally thousands, 
thousands of corrections are made to ensure that the plane sets down in the appropriate landing strip. Without those course corrections, even a tiny 1% deviation from the original plan. Who does that? My phone is going off in the middle. Sorry about that. Slightest deviation, right? Totally off course. Sorry, I'm going to go back to where I was. Even 1% deviation from the original flight plan would land that airplane in a totally different country. The contemporary church is like a jet plane that with no capacity for correcting of, or correction of course deviation, we will become susceptible to, redefining, to the redefining of our own purpose and our existence. And we can't do that. So that's sort of like the purpose of this series. It's sort of like becoming that plane and choosing to self-correct and recognize where our humanness has gotten us to a point where we don't really know who we are. And so I'm excited about the potential of realigning. DNA is the master molecule of every cell. It contains vital information that gets passed on to each successive generation. Um, it coordinates the making of itself as well as the, mo the molecules. Um, it is it is, if it is changed slightly, serious consequences result. If it is destroyed beyond repair, a cell dies. DNA is a molecule that carries the genetic instructions used in the growth, development, functioning, and reproduction of all living organisms. DNA is not set in the cell of an organism by that organism. It is set by its creator. So you have DNA, I have DNA, and our DNA is what you see. Right? Everything that you see with me right now, minus my clothes, um, that is my DNA. Sorry if that was awkward. That's my DNA. You have DNA as well. Usually it's me that's picturing you naked, not the other way around, right? Um, but our DNA sort of sets the course for our appearance, right? My eyes are brown or green or blue or whatever they are because of my DNA, um, DNA is the sort of foundational elements that make something what it is, that give it definition, that give it um, uniqueness, that, that kind of determine its course of action. A local church's DNA isn't found in a cell. It is not a molecule, and it doesn't look like a twisted ladder, but it has the same impact on the collective personality and outcomes of a community as it does on the physical attributes of an individual. Our DNA then, and I want you to hear this, dictates who we are. Our DNA determines what we do. Our DNA is, is what ultimately determines what we pursue, what we care about, what we give our resources to, and what our ultimate impact is going to be. Every church has DNA. The problem is, most of the time, our DNA is not set on purpose. It's set by accident. And even more often than that, the collective um, group of people that make up a given local church has no clue what their DNA is actually is. When we don't know, when we don't have clarity, our default is simply our comfort. And from day one at Finding Life Church, we've always said our DNA will always align with the heart of God. For his church, not our comfort, not what we want, not what we see culture doing, the God of the universe. See, he set the course for our DNA. The biggest difference between human DNA and like organizational DNA, which I'd include the church in that, um, the biggest difference is we sort of get to choose what our DNA is, right? Human beings don't. You get the hair color you get, and that's sort of the way it is. Now, we have ways of altering that, obviously, but you got, we get to choose. As a church, we get to choose. An organization chooses, but here's the thing. God has set a roadmap 
for the DNA of his church. It's not ours, it's his. So our choice then is either to align with him or choose to do our own thing. So do we know who we are? Do we know what, why that matters? In the coming weeks, we're going to get specific about answering these questions. But this morning, I want to enter this series by answering the question, why? Why does it matter? In the life of a human being, DNA determines every physical attribute in that individual. Not only that, but it determines the physical attributes of everything that individual reproduces. And the same thing is true about the church. We reproduce who we are, plain and simple. Our DNA dictates who we are. Our DNA, DNA determines what we do and ultimately the impact of our ministry. This series is about three things. Aligning our DNA with the heart of God, getting clear about why we exist, and unifying around what we will do as a result. And we don't get to decide. When we choose to deviate from God's plan for his church, we actually cease to be the church. And that's a subtle nuance that I want you to connect with this morning. Um, there's an intended DNA for the church that God set. Um, and our job is to discover what that is and let it become the defining and directing purpose for everything that we do. If we don't, we become sort of like a, a strange like manipulation or misorientation of the church. And I want to show you a picture that is a really good illustration of this. Now, uh, this is going to be two pictures, and it's Michael Jackson. I want you to know before anything that I am a huge Michael Jackson fan, okay? But we know something about Michael Jackson, and that is that he changed his appearance over the course of his life, right? So here's, there's going to be a picture here in a minute, um, maybe. Here it is. Um, a side-by-side -side of Michael Jackson. This is Michael Jackson in the early years. I actually think that he's already started doing some work at that point. Um, but look at the difference. This is the same human being. The same one. See, as the church, we kind of have become like Michael Jackson in that we've decided, well, we didn't determine who we were, but I don't really like who we are, so I'm going to slightly alter it. These two guys look similar, right? You know this is Michael Jackson when you see him, but does it look like the Michael Jackson in the picture on the left? It really doesn't at all. And I fear that as a church, we've become sort of like a, a resemblance of what God uh, what God wanted out of his church or what Jesus thought was worth dying for. We've got little aspects here and there that look and smack and sort of, sort of make us think of the thing that God had planned. But at the end of the day, we look completely different than I, I believe than what God intended. And that's what happens when we're unclear, unaware of the DNA that God set for his church or unwilling to lean into it. Um, there's good news and bad news this morning. The bad news is this, allowing the intended DNA of the church to be at the foundation of our ex local expression of his church, this local church, Finding Life Church, um, it requires sacrifice. It requires that we choose selflessness, embrace suffering, and live an others first mentality. The good news is it's actually incredibly simple. Answering the question, what does God want? What is the church actually about what is the intended DNA, DNA of the church, it's actually really, really simple, way more simple than we make it, probably more simple than the definition that you wrote down. Um, it's our truth this morning. It's at the top of your worship flyer if you want to turn that over and kind of follow along. Um, it's simple. Our truth this morning is we are the sent ones. If the church was a cell and you could look closely at its DNA, its strands, that ladder would have one word written all over it, and it would say sent and I know that's not even actually a word. I'm going to get there in a minute. 
It would say sentness all over it. The answer to the question, what is the church, is simple. A community of people living as sent in the world for the purpose of living the power of Christ to anyone and everyone they come in contact with. When they gather, it's to celebrate their sentness and learn how to better live as sent. When they scatter, right, Monday through Saturday in our case, it is, our, it is for the purpose of living as sent no matter what context we find ourselves in. The church is a gathering and a, scat- and a scattering of, of um, sent people, of sent ones. And that's the way I want us to understand this this morning. I want you to connect with this. I want you to know this because before we move on to the, kind of the specifics, the nuts and bolts of who Finding Life Church is and what we do and why we do it and all that stuff, our vision, our mission, our values, which we have and we care a lot about, we have to recognize that this filter has to be placed on everything we do first. The church has an identity. We didn't set it. God did. And our job is to discover it and lean into it with everything that we've got, no matter what the cost. I want you to get this because clarity on DNA of God's church is paramount in living out his mission in the world and being a church that Jesus would be glad that he died for. In this series, we're going to talk about Finding Life Church vision like I said, in mission and values, but first we've got to start here. Bottom line, the church's DNA, its foundations, its identifying trait is sent, is sentness. So let's talk a little more about what that means. Number one on your outline is simple. Sentness is an adjective, not a verb. And this is the subtle nuance that I want you to, I want you to connect with. When you hear me say the word sent or sentness, naturally we think verb, right? Sending is something you do, right? But in this case, I want you to sort of set that definition aside and recognize that in, in God's economy, sentence is more of an adjective, a description of who I am as a member of God's church. For example, smoke doesn't do smoke. Smoke is identified by its smokiness. If smoke ceases to be smoky, it's no longer smoke. Get it? Water doesn't do wetness. Water is wet. It's a defining character trait of water. If water is no longer water or wet, then it's no longer water. In the same way, the church doesn't exist to send people. The church is a gathering of people who identify as sent. A church community not living as sent is not the church. When we recognize this as an identifying adjective trait of the church, it changes the conversation completely our misunderstanding of the core founding dna of the church in the book of acts the early church gets skewed by our lack of understanding of this thing of this uh, of this reality this subtle nuance if you have a bible you can turn to acts chapter one you don't have to i'm going to read all of this stuff um or you can look on your phone too um if you got the bible app that'd be sweet pull it up um because i want you to see it in the book of acts is basically like a chronicle of the history of the church as we know it. There's events that take place here that if they didn't happen, we wouldn't be here today. Okay, that's kind of what's going on. That being said, it's more of like a story of these people, right? It's not necessarily our story, and it's set in like a time and a culture that's completely different than ours. That's something that we always have to recognize when we go to God's word. The intended audience of of these verses is actually not you and me. It still applies powerfully. That's a whole other subject, but This is to these people, and it's describing something that's going on, a historical um, chronicle of something that happened a long, long time ago. But it is, in fact, sort of like the catalyst for the church as we know it. So you can trace our roots all the way back to these events that I'm going to talk about today. And I want to read this, and I want you to see what's happening here. 
Um, because our, our misunderstanding of these events are sort of what like, catalyzed the problem for us, I think. Um, and so I want to start in Acts chapter 1, um, starting in verse 1. The first account composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. So let me catch you up real quick. So if you know this story at all of like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's the Gospels, right? It's the story of Jesus' life, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. And we're picking up from there. It's basically like right, pretty much right away. Okay, Jesus died. Um, he raises from the dead three days later. And he starts showing up on the scene in different people's lives. He shows up to his friends. He's like, here I am, right? You can touch the nail holes in my hands, in my feet, and in my side. He's coming back, and, he's, and he said he was going to do this, and he, now he's showing up just to say, yep, I did it. I conquered the grave. Here I am. But the crazy thing is they all kind of think, oh, sweet, Jesus is back. Life is back to normal. But Jesus had another plan. His plan was actually to come back, prove kind of like his existence, his life, the fact that he conquered death, because that's where all of the power comes from, and then sort of like pass the baton to them and say, all right, I'm leaving you're going to pick up where I left off, and I've got some instructions for you. So that's what's going on here. Um, it's sort of setting the stage for those events. Verse 3, um, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to, the, to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, from John the Baptist, baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus is saying to them, hang out, stay here, don't go anywhere, at least not yet, okay? Because something crazy is going to happen. I'm going to give you power, the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's going to be this crazy thing. And so then verse 6 is kind of when that happens. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times which the Father has fixed at his own authority. He says, don't worry about when I'm going to make the entire world whole again. Don't worry about when, okay? Right now you've got another job. It's verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So this, like this moment, is actually the catalyzing moment for, for the church, for, for us, for for us being in this room today, if this doesn't happen, we aren't here, okay? Um, if I went back and read that again, the crazy thing is you wouldn't hear any of the stuff that we understand as church, right? You wouldn't hear it. Stained glass buildings? Where do you see something about sermons, about worship bands, small groups, pastors, prayer meetings, Christmas programs, children's ministry, youth groups? There is none of that in there. It's just, it's just not there. Everything we have today, we sort of like invented and created, and, and all of it is related to our cultural context, and I'm okay with that, but we have to start with DNA. See, the church was never meant to be defined by the things that we do, either in this building or any other, but more who we are. Jesus says, I'm out of here. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit and a new identity. You are, from this point on, my sent ones. Or the church. It's synonyms. They're the same thing. Sent ones, the church, they go together. They go hand in hand. It's actually the same 
calling. Go be the church. You are the sent ones. It's a new identity. He lists a few places, right? He says, you're going to be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem. That's their hometown. That's where they're sitting. That's where they're at in that moment. Then he says, Judea, that's like their friendly neighbors. The next like community over. Okay, then he says, Samaria, that's another community over, but they're enemies. And then he says, to all the earth, right? The ends of the earth. Don't get hung up with the places because Jesus wasn't sending them to places. He was saying, go live as sent. Go live my life sent in the world. And guess what's going to happen when you do? It's going to go everywhere. It's going to go everywhere. He doesn't say, build a building. You know, find a gathering place. And as many of you believe like you, get them all together in one place. Pile them in. And maybe preach some sermons. You know, there's different ages, so you might need to, like, segment some of them off so that they can hear, like, a sermon in their own, in their own words or in a way they can understand. He doesn't say any of this. He doesn't say anything about rows or pews or music. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my sent ones. I want to change the entire course of human history through your lives. Go live as the church, the sent ones of Jesus. In essence, that's what he's saying. Go live as sent. So then guess what happens? They do. They just go and they start living as sent. And they start telling people about what about who Jesus is and what he has done and, and how the, the prophecies from the Old Testament have sort of like come true. And it sounded like this, and here's sort of like the, like the impact of them going and living as sent. I'm in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Peter's words, Peter sort of stands up in this powerful moment and preaches this, or like speaks this like message about hope and about Jesus, the gospel. Um, it says this, Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent for your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, come, come to him. Those who believed what Peter were, were saying were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. Now this is the first time in the Bible that the word church is used. Now you hear the word church and you think of whatever definition you wrote down on that paper. That's what you think of, but that's not what Peter is saying. That's not what God is talking about. These numbers that are being added to the, to the church that day, 3,000 that day, they weren't being added to a gathering. They were at, being added to this identity as the sent ones of Jesus. This is the church. There's no organized structure they're not gathering together at this point. There's just this group of people, and they're living as sent, and a bunch of people are like, whoa, that's cool. I want to live that way too, and they keep doing it, and God is changing the entire landscape of the world through these people. This is, this is the DNA of the church. This is where it begins. And they continue. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. I'm starting to see like, you know, we, take, we took that and we go, um, all the believers just devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, that means we should get a place where a, an apostle can teach. And that's why you're sitting here listening to me right now. It's crazy. I'm not saying this is crazy. We'll get to that in a minute. But we've got to start with understanding where we came from, God's intention for the church. But continue to listen to the description 
of these people, a deep, a deep sense of awe came over all of them. And the apostles performed many miracles and signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. This crazy impact, right? And they didn't need... They didn't need, like, the organized structure they didn't, because they didn't define themselves based on the things that they were doing, but based on who they are, the sent ones of, the, of Jesus. The church is not identified by what it does or even how it does it. It's not identified by its location or its budget. It's not identified by its theological positions on hot-button issues or the style of its worship band. The, the church's identity is and always has been sentness. We are, I want you to hear this, we are the sent ones of Jesus. When we come together, we are the gathered church. When we disperse, we are the scattered church. What makes us the church then is not whether we are gathered or scattered. It is that we are in fact living as sent. I hope this is sort of crystallizing or clarifying for you, but, but understanding this is huge. We've got to connect with it. it. Like our impact, our ability to live into the heart of God, it hinges upon us understanding this. That God has called you, and he's called me, and he's called all of us to go live in our world as sent ones in the name of Jesus. And if we identify church as this, then that sort of puts me in the role of telling you what to do and going and living it myself, when God, which would steal from the incredible gift that God has given you and saying, hey, no, I want you. I want you. I choose you. We've talked about this before. There's places that... that, that you can go that I can't, that you have influence that I don't, people that you can love that are far away from me, and vice versa. The church is at its best when every single person recognizes that God has called me to go live, love um, the people of our world. And we can either choose to be the church God chose, or we can be something else entirely. It's up to us, but here's the reality, and I, I want you to connect with this. Um, and where I want to spend the rest of our time. Um, if we choose not to live in to what God is calling us to, then we have to stop calling ourselves the church. Because the church is identified as sent people. I saw this quote this week, and um, it may have been super offensive because I tweeted it. It was on Facebook also, and like nobody really liked it um, for obvious reasons, right? And Francis Chan said, he said, Christians are like manure. Spread them out and they help everything grow better. But keep them in one big pile, and they stink horribly. Okay, so, like, if that offends you slightly, okay, I don't mind. But here's the reality. This is true. This is, this is our reality. There's another quote that says, like, a ship in a harbor is safe and it's beautiful, but that's not what ships were made for, right? The same thing kind of applies here. We were meant to be sent. We were made for sentness. And when we kind of pile on each other and inward focus and think about what we want, what we care about, our stuff, we become stinky. We become smelly. We become people that, that have no like relevance to the rest of the world. And if you don't know this, just take a moment and consider the reputation of the church in our world, just in our community. Are we known as sent ones living out the gospel of grace? Absolutely not. Which leads to number two um, on your outline if you're following along. When a church is unclear about its DNA as sent, 
it becomes toxic. It becomes toxic. Um, a ship is safe in the harbor, right? But it's not meant for that. When we stop living into what God has called us to, we begin sort of like a downward spiral into uselessness, worthlessness. We have nothing to offer. The church was not made to be inward focused. It was meant to be, uh, it wasn't meant to be settled. And when we settle in, we become toxic. We actually kind of like eat our own, right? And you know this probably. I know there's a vast majority of you in this room who came to us broken by their, their past church experience, like beat up. The church has become better at beating people up than anything else, tearing people down than anything else because we're missing the core DNA. We're missing our purpose. When something isn't used for its intended purpose, after a while, it becomes kind of worthless, a worthless version of itself. Ever had a broken arm? Ever had a broken leg? If you're in a cast for like two, three months, what happens when, that, when, when you take that cast off, your leg, your arm, it's like it doesn't work anymore. It gets all skinny and shriveled up. Why? Because it hasn't been doing what it's meant to do. An arm is meant to move. It's meant to pick things up. It's meant to function. And when it doesn't do that for a long period of time, even just a couple of months, it becomes kind of worthless, sad, pathetic. I fear that a church that isn't unaware or unclear about its core DNA, it becomes like an arm that's been in a cast for 100, 200, 300, 400 years. Shriveled up. A shell of its existence. It still kind of looks like an arm. But it's useless. It's worthless. This happens to the church when its DNA as scent gets lost. It, it stinks. It shrinks on itself and begins to die from the inside out. In Acts chapter 4 and 5, there's a moment that stands out in history of the early development of the church. It's like one of those moments. It's sort of like, like that, that passage I just read about all the believers being together and sharing their stuff and God's doing cool things. The, the Lord is adding numbers to their, to their fellowship daily, those who are being saved. All this really cool stuff is going on. And there's this moment where, where that is threatened. There's a problem, and it's, it's in uh, chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, and I'll read it again. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything, and God's doing all these cool things. Um, for instance, there was a guy named Joseph, one of the apostles nicknamed Barnabas. Um, he was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold the field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. But there was a certain man named Ananias, and it goes on to talk about these two people who sort of like took the DNA of the church and used it to their own advantage, okay? They brought, they sold a piece of land and they brought the money and they said, this is all of it, but meanwhile, they were kind of keeping it a secret that they held some back for themselves, which would have been fine, but they lied about it. They chose to like pretend like, yeah, this is all we've got. And so there's this culture, this, this DNA level culture of people who are like, we are the sent ones of Jesus and our lives are all about people finding Jesus, knowing the gospel, experiencing his grace, and then these two people come along and they're like, well, maybe we can sort of like feed off of this culture. I don't know exactly what's going on in Ananias and Sapphira's head, but they see it as an opportunity to sort of superimpose their own selfish DNA on something that God was doing. And so what happens? Um, there was a certain man named Ananias who was with his wife, Sapphira, sold some property. He bought, brought part of the money to the, to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount with his wife's consent he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. 
the property was yours to sell or not. So he's saying you didn't have to sell it. This isn't like a, like a police state where you got to sell your stuff and give it to this. No, it's like totally free will, but he's saying don't like sell your stuff and then bring, bring the money and go, this is all that we had, and pretend. That's kind of the point. Um, and Peter's like, why did you do that? You weren't lying to us, but you were lying to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. And then the same thing happens with his wife, comes in. She's like, yep, it was all the money. Peter says the same thing. She dies. Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who were buried, who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they'll carry you out too. And I read this, and I'm like, what the heck? This is so weird. If this happened in 2017, well, it's still weird to say. If that happened in 2017, we would be freaked out. And guess what? So are they. This is weird to them too. Okay, Ananias and Sapphira signify a deviation from the core DNA and defining principles of this new growing faith community. They represent a mutation that is, if it's not corrected, will infect the entire movement of the gospel. What's happening here is too big of a deal. Such a big deal that people that come along and are like, like flipping about it, don't care about it, are fine with sort of like, well, it's close, but it's not the real thing. Take advantage of superimpose their selfishness on what God is already doing. It's, it's toxic. It's dangerous. In our world today, it's subtle. It's even undetectable at times. If a church exists primarily to serve itself and meet the, and meet the felt needs of the people that claim it as their church home, if what happens inside its four walls is more important than what happens outside, if its people identify by what they do when they gather or, or where they gather, this is the church, this, then it's not the church. It's becoming toxic. If we identify ourselves by what we do and how we do it, we become toxic. When that happens, we become a shell, a shell of who we were intended to be. The church has lost clarity on why they exist. It implodes on itself. Or at the very least, it becomes sort of like a worthless version of what it was intended to be. Um, number three, when a local church is clear on its DNA, it's primed for impact. And this is sort of where I want to land the plane. I'm moving on in Acts chapter 7. Um, there's this other story. And, and the church continues to move on. And it's the same kind of stuff, like over and over. People do, like the people living, they're all in Jerusalem at this point. So it's kind of a small area, but they're living in Jerusalem as sent. Right? They come together from time to time and they worship God and they eat meals and stuff like that. But that's really all we see. Okay? And then um, as their numbers start to grow, um, there's sort of like some shifting that starts to happen. You start to see like uh, the need for some structure, which I'm not totally sure what to do with. I'm going to leave that for now. But they realize that there are people within this sort of like growing faith community that aren't like being taken care of. And, and some people are, uh, are just sort of ignoring them. And so the apostles, they like start appointing these, these people that can sort of deal with the, the realities of a large group that's forming. Right? They don't have like a building. They gather together sort of at the temple, which is where they used to before. So they didn't do anything real specific. Um, but they, they decide we need some more people whose job specifically is to kind of organize these people because it's getting, they're getting hard to deal with because that's what happens when people organize, right? They, their people are hard to deal with. So there's this one guy and his name is Stephen. Um, he gets appointed to be one of these guys that sort of watches out for things and in the community and how's it going and making sure specifically um, certain 
um, members of this community are like not being mistreated. Um, and, and so Stephen is this incredible guy, and you can go and read about it in Acts chapter 7 and 8. He actually gets up and preaches his crazy sermon um, that's really crazy. And there's this other dude named Paul. You've heard of Paul maybe before, but Paul at this time, is actually, actually his name was Saul, and he hated Christians, hated them with the very fabric of his existence. And he thought, he saw it as his job to remove Christians from the planet. So he was going around persecuting, throwing Christians in jail, um, telling them to stop preaching, and even at one point kill, starting to kill them. So he comes across this Stephen guy, and he's like, this guy is having a huge impact. This community is growing. It's dangerous. It's scary. We got we to shut him down. So Paul orders Stephen to be executed. They take him outside the walls of the city, and they stone him to death. Okay? And in that moment, it's like this hinge point for the church. What's going to happen next? And Paul thinks, done, destroyed, got him. There's no way that anybody's going to come back from this. Like this community, there's no way they have the guts to come back after watching one of their leaders be stoned to death. Nobody wants that. I did it. I won. Here we go. Sweet. But what, what Paul failed to realize or what he expected about the DNA of this growing church is the same thing that our misunderstanding is rooted in today, that the church is actually identified by a gathered group of people that share the same like values and their stuff is what matters most to them. What Paul didn't realize is that when he did this, in this moment, he actually scattered, scattered these people and they went out into the world, into the community around them and became churches, sent ones in whatever environment they came in contact with. And this is the power of the church. Paul thought, man, I won, I did it. But all he did was spread the gospel. And this is why the DNA of the church matters so much. When we bottle ourselves up, when we pile ourselves on, on one another, when we identify ourselves by what we do and where we meet and why we meet and all that kind of stuff, we fail to recognize that we are actually the sent ones of Jesus. And this earliest, earliest faith community, they understood that. And Paul didn't understand. He thought if he broke them up, they would be futile. They'd be useless. He thought the organized structure was the thing that was keeping them together. But they identified as the sent ones of Jesus. So when they got scattered across the world, all it did was scatter the gospel, scatter the power of grace, and it took over the entire world. Um, as I was driving um, last night, um, something interesting happened to me. I was, I was driving kids around, um, waiting for, for, for Maggie to get done from, um, from, a, from a birthday party. And um, I got a, a text, I, and I, I got a text from a friend. Um, I was texting back and forth with them because there was a party we were going to that night, and they, um, their car broke down in Lincoln. Um, and they were just kind of explaining, I'm, we might get there. We're working on trying to figure out how to get there. Um, so I said, cool, well, let me know if you need any help. I parked somewhere, um, did, just did, started doing some work. I was actually working on this message, and um, craziest thing happened. He texted me back. He's like, dude, we're not going to make it to the party tonight because our car's broken, and we have, no, we have no way to get home. And I just, like, literally it happened in, like, about 10 seconds. I just texted back. I said, well, I'll come pick you up. And they were, like, completely shocked and floored. They are like, what? Why would you do that? It's, 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 you know, an hour away. It's like two hours total. Why would you do this? And, and my point in telling this story is not to like toot my own horn or talk about how great I am or like spiritual I am because that's not the point at all. Um, but something occurred to me as I was on my way to Lincoln to pick these friends of mine up. Um, what was it about my heart that so instinctually 
responded with, well, I'll come. When I had a ton of work to do, I was like still in the middle of like writing my sermon. I had kids to pick up. I knew that when I got off the phone with them, I had to call my wife and dump a whole bunch of stuff on her that I was going to do. But something happened. It wasn't even, it was like a knee-jerk reaction. When there was something, a need that needed to be met, I was just like, it was natural to me. And I asked myself, what, like, what happened? Why am I like that? Because honestly, I'm as selfish as you are. I promise you that. I spend most of my life trying to fight my own selfishness. And I was surprised at my quick response to help, to go out of my way. And I realized that the core DNA of the early church has taken root in my own heart. And this is what I want for our community, to be people who set aside our comfort, set aside what what we want or what comes natural. If I wouldn't have sent that text and said, I'll come pick you up, they wouldn't have liked me less. They wouldn't have been like, well, gee, I wonder why he didn't offer to come pick us up. But I would have missed out on the opportunity to show them the tangible love and grace of Jesus. When we identify ourselves by what we do, we miss out on the opportunity to be transformed in a way that changes the way we view the entire world. And here's the thing. Here is the most important thing to connect with. When each of us collectively live as sent in the world, now we become a sleeping giant. We live in a world that's full of, of stuff that we don't like to see. And, and, and you know this as well as I do. Like, like we live in, a, in an awful world, and the most recent one was the, the shootings in, in Florida in the airport. Right? It's actually kind of close to home because somebody that lived in Council Bluffs or a relative of a person living in Council Bluffs was one of the victims. Our world is just like, like every day we see more and more terrible things happening. And I'm convinced that the, that the answer is the church. The church that recognizes that we are the sent ones of Jesus and our job isn't to gather in a building, feel good about ourselves, and then leave and go on about our lives. It's to take on this new identity as the sent ones of Jesus. When we scatter from this place, we're actually way more dynamic, way more powerful than we are when we're here. And maybe, just maybe, our gatherings could become um, like a rallying point, a celebration of our sentness, a place where we recognize that we can introduce other people to a lifestyle of sentness, learn what it means to live as sent in our world. But this is the core DNA of, of the church, and it will always be for us. So when you consider, and I just want you to take a minute and go back to that definition, maybe you just thought about it in your head, maybe you wrote something down, I want you to look at those words again. It might take some like challenging of your own heart to get past the stuff that's on that paper because you might really like the things that are on that paper. You might really be comfortable with the things that you've identified as the church. You know, the way you've always done it, the things that feel good to you, comfortable to you. But for us to move past that and become the sleeping giant that the church was meant to be, we have to set aside what's comfortable for us we have to look past these things that, that have sort of come, become natural to the church that God never intended to become people who live our identity as sent ones in the name of Jesus. Father God, would you cement our DNA? Would you take each and every one of us and, and empower us to be the kind of people who live, live the power of the gospel in the everyday moments of our lives? And that your DNA would take 
deep root in our hearts, that we become people who default, default to living as sent. We don't question it. It's like knee-jerk reaction to live for the sake of others rather than living for ourselves. And God, I imagine, I wonder, I dream about the day that, that the church could become a living, breathing example of your heart. God, it can't happen unless you do something in and through us. Separate us from ourselves and show us what it means to walk in your, in your footsteps, in your grace, in your mercy, in the power of your love. In Jesus' name we pray.